Well, this morning, as you've probably recognized, I don't have my Britney Spears or Backstreet Boy-esque mic on today. So you're probably thinking, is he is he going to try to pretend he doesn't talk with his hands and do a lot of like the... Uh, uh. I'm not. I'm not speaking this morning, which I'm so excited about. We can we can praise that, right? Like someone else. Come on. Like you're making me feel too good. No, seriously. Um, there's something beautiful, I think, in the church. Yeah, thank you, Wilma. No, seriously, there's something beautiful about in in the in in the in the bride of Christ, the church, that there are multiple voices that speak through the one voice. That if you read scripture, you find that there. While there is the one true voice from God, that there are many people that he used to uh, convey messages, to encourage, to uh, to just d- different seasons. And so it's always important, and it is always a good thing when we have others who come into our community, and even those who are within our community, um, to share. Because I don't have all the answers. You all know that. And I'm so excited for our, our speaker today. Chuck McCoskey, who, who leads our recovery ministry, um, he bought me a book one time. It's called Choose and Choose Again. Uh, the Brave Act of Returning to God's Love. And he bought it for me, and, and for like six months it sat on my shelf. And he would hound me all the time. Come on, don't, in the name of in brotherly Christ-like love, he would hound me. Have you read it yet? Have you read it yet? I mean, it was just this like, it was like a little kid wanting you to look at like artwork that they made for their dad. Like it was, I mean, that love. But like he was just on it. And then eventually he finally let it go. Well, I, I went on vacation this last fall. I decided, ah, I'm going to take that book. I'm, I'm excited to read it. And I remember um, going into that vacation just at a place where, to be honest, um, I was just really struggling. I was struggling with uh, a lot of my own identity. I was struggling with a lot of my um, worth and value. And so I, I can still remember I'm sitting out. It's, it's, it's dark outside. I'm sitting outside. I, I crack open the first couple chapters and I start to read. And I remember just having like a moment where I'm like, I hope no family comes out right now. Cause they're going to be like, what is wrong with you? Like, are you okay? Did someone hurt you? Um, but it just hit me in a beautiful way. And, uh, I'm so excited. The author of this book, his name is Kevin Butcher. Um, Kevin has been in ministry, uh, for, 40 year, 30 ish, 35 years. Um, he served primarily in Detroit. So, you know, he's serving in God's country, uh, as you guys know how I feel about Michigan. But honestly, this book wrecked me in the best way possible. Um, I would highly encourage you. Uh, I'm going to invite Kevin up in just a moment, but I'd highly encourage you. Um, and you're probably going to feel that way after you hear him um, crack open God's word this morning. Uh, he's got his books for sale out in the lobby, and I'd highly encourage you to get a copy there's so many great stories of how God um, changes people's lives. People who look just like us and people who look nothing like us. And the, the, the common thread in all of it is just this reality that God loves us so deeply. That he so desperately desires for us to find our identity in him, not in anything else. And so um, this morning, seriously, we are, we are so blessed. Kevin is a published author. He's a very sought-after um, speaker, uh, both nationally and internationally. And so we are so blessed to have him here this morning. So would you guys just give it up for Kevin as he's going to break open God's word. Thank you, my brother. It's been um, a delight to uh, be back in Kokomo where I spent the better part of at least 18 years of my journey and to connect with some old friends um, uh, and some new friends. I mean, hadn't ever met Aaron before, got to meet him, got to meet, uh, really spend some more time with Pastor Brian and his wife uh, from uh, Grace 
United Methodist Church downtown, a historic uh, Kokomo church. I think someone told me, maybe Brian told me yesterday, it's the first church maybe that was built in Kokomo back in the day when Kokomo was founded. And, um, and then to spend some time with some old friends, we, we sat around last night with uh, Chuck McCaskey and Bruce Tapplinger and their families, and uh, I hadn't laughed like that in a long, long time. And uh, it was quite therapeutic, so thank you for that gift as well. Um, some of you probably have heard me uh, give this particular talk that I'm going to give this morning. Um, so in some ways, I guess I would say sorry, and then I'm going to say not sorry, because um, I've made a commitment to myself at this stage of my journey in life that um, when I go to different venues across the country and sometimes to other countries, that if I haven't been in a particular church community for, uh, and I've never been to South Creek in this setting, that I'm going to talk uh, from this text about this message that I think comes from the heart of God. And so maybe if you have heard some of this material this morning, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit will help you hear it in just a new way, in a way that will uh, draw you closer to his heart and allow him to speak words of love to you that you've maybe longed to hear for a very long time. So if you have a copy of the text, or if you don't, you can just look this morning on um, the screen. I'd like you to, to take a look at John 13, 34 and 35. And I want to, I want to speak from... <clears throat> some of Jesus' last words to his followers. And as most of you know, uh, the last words that someone says in their life are usually the most important words. If, if we get the chance to speak last words, there's a moment where we're trying to crystallize maybe to our family or to our friends that are hovering around our bedside exactly what we think our life has meant or what we think life means. There are libraries filled with books from famous people and their last words, very few books uh, filled with people's words at midlife, but lots of books filled with people's last words, because again, they're some of the most important words. And so the context is Jesus, this is the night before he's going to die. He has just uh, celebrated Passover with his disciples. He's washed their feet as a symbolic act of love and um, servanthood. I mean, here, here's the Son of God who strips down, takes the uh, takes the uh, the form of of, of of a slave in a in a household of that day in a Greco-Roman household because only slaves washed feet. He washes his disciples' feet, Judas's feet, who is going out to betray him shortly, Peter's feet, who denied him, the feet of that other. Uh, the other ten ragtag disciples that had various issues, a couple of which were going to try to follow him out into the Garden of Gethsemane and couldn't stay awake. They slept when he was in agony waiting for his death on the cross. He washed their feet. And then he says, uh, I want to tell you, I'm going to leave you, he says, and, and, and you can't come with me. You're going to stay here. I'm gone. And the only way that the world is going to see me is going to be through you. They're only going to know you through me. And so here are my last words to you about what you must be about. Whatever else you're about, there's all kinds of things you're going to be about, he might have said. But this you must be about if the world is going to see me. And this is what he said. You'll see the words on the screen or in a copy of the text you have in front of you. A new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another as I have loved you. Hang on to that phrase. We'll come back to it in a moment. That you also love one another by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples. And then he goes on at the end. He talks for quite a bit longer, two or three more chapters. And at the end, he prays this prayer to, to his God and our God, John 17. He kind of encapsulates uh, this section of teaching to his disciples with some words in John 17 that echo what he says in John 13, but drive them home more deeply. He says, in fact, Father, I pray that you will help my followers love one another to the point that they will stay as one. That that love will make them one. Because if the world sees them as one, they will know that you, Father, sent me. Now, if you Google evangelism, you know, if you don't know the word evangelism, it just means sharing the good news of Jesus, why he came, his forgiveness, his love, his death and resurrection, and what that gives us in terms of new life. If you Google that term, 250,000 websites will come up. And I get that. There are all kinds of strategies about how to reach people. You know, I know around Easter, I used to, this is going to sound tacky. I mean, being a pastor for 35 years, Aaron, God bless you on Easter because there's just pressure culturally in the church community and and even in the non-Christian community to kind of do this thing that helps people feel how special Easter is. You know, we can't just proclaim Jesus as Lord and just love people well. We've got to have an Easter pageant and, you know, have Jesus is coming up out of the grave on wires, you know, and, and uh, live animals on the stage and felt some of that at Christmas. I love Easter, but I hated Easter for that reason, that we, we feel like somehow there's got to be a strategy. There's got to be something that we come up with. And don't we see this in Christianity? You know, there, there's beach evangelism, nothing wrong with that, but most people on the beaches are just trying to get a tan. I'm not saying it's wrong to share Christ with someone. You may be a person that went to Florida one year and a group of students came and shared Christ with you there. And maybe a few people come to Christ. I'm not, I'm not sure that for everyone that comes to Christ, ten more say, I'll never believe in Christ. And again, I'm not dissing any particular strategy that comes out of a good heart that's trying to help somebody find Jesus. But you want to know what? We don't need the websites because Jesus' website says, this is how we win the world. We love all the one another's. And then the broken world will see what our words alone can't possibly convey. I'm so tired of, of a battle of theologies like, oh, you think Islam has something to offer? Well, let me tell you what Christianity has to offer. And usually it's these are the ideas of Islam. Let me combat those ideas with the ideas of Christianity. I don't know if you've noticed, but in the postmodern world, most people think that ideas are just kind of ideas and there are no real ideas that really land anywhere. There's no ideas that are more profitable than any other ideas. And so we better find another way to communicate to this generation that Jesus Christ is Lord rather than arguing them into it by giving them the best thoughts. Because the folk out there, quite frankly, I mean, when you, when you go that direction, their eyes begin to glaze over. I'm not saying our faith is not reasonable and there's not a time to share the reasonableness of our faith. I'm just saying, according to Jesus, it's not about us arguing anyone into the kingdom of God. It's about us displaying the kingdom of God by the power of a love that heals the divisions that the enemy has been breaking us down in in our culture since the beginning of time. 
Can you imagine today in Kokomo, Indiana, if all of a sudden Apperson Way was not a Berlin Wall? Especially in the church community, if all of a sudden it's like, it's not like, well, I can't go there, man. Those are some white folks up in there. I can't go down in there because I don't understand African-American culture. Or if the Mexican church didn't say, well, you know, those folks are Puerto Rican, man, and we just don't hang with the Puerto Ricans. What if in the name of Jesus we took Jesus' words seriously, finally, and said, somehow I've got to find some love that will allow me to reach across lines that have divided us for too long. And we give all the excuses. Well, you know, people's music, it's just not like, are you kidding me? We're going to stand before Christ someday, and he's going to say, how would you do with my final words? And we're going to say, well, it was the music. What a moment of, and I'm not judging here, man. I mean, I am you. What a moment of abject sorrow that we wasted our time on this planet because we didn't like the music that the Methodists played. Because you know us Pentecostals, we do it right. At some point, my brothers and sisters, and, and I think we're starting to get this in, in, in Christian culture, the places I go, we're starting to be more receptive to this message, I think. Somehow we have to hear the words of Jesus that say, this is what you got to do above all else. You've got to love one another. This is not even about loving the non-believing world. It's about loving the people sitting in the pew next to you. Everywhere I go, I'm hearing a story about, well, you know, that family left. Not because the Holy Spirit spoke and said, you need to go off over here to share Christ. It's like, well, we didn't like X. Are you kidding me? And we wonder why the world says, you know what? Christian folks, God love you, but you don't really have anything to offer me in my brokenness. And by the way, what the world has that we share with them is relational brokenness. Tell me this morning, is there any other pain that's more significant to you than broken relationship? A mother and a son who are somehow estranged. A husband and a wife who somehow can't find their way to stay together. An old friend that something happens and the relationship is destroyed. Is there any pain that more deeply impacts us than the pain of broken relationship? That's what the non-believing world continues to suffer under as well because it's been the big thing that the enemy's been doing since Genesis 3. You know this. The first impact of the fall was, uh, Adam, uh, how did this happen? It was that woman you gave me. Four, you know, four verses earlier, they had stood there together side by side, naked and not ashamed as a picture of our good God who gave us each other to show him to the world in intimate relationship. First thing the enemy did was destroy that relationship, and he's been destroying relationships ever since. The first sign, don't miss this, according to Jesus, of the kingdom of God breaking in is restored relationship. What if the world saw Kokomo come together in the name of Jesus Christ? And I know there's some efforts. There's the great banquet, and there's the, and it's, it's all so good, actually, huddle. On, on Wednesdays downtown. But what I sense here is what I sense other places. We come together for this hot second. We have a little potluck. And then we go back and do our own things where we're most comfortable. Where quite frankly, when we're looking at people that look like us, act like us, think like us, talk like us, 
you really don't need much love because it's just a bunch of clone folk who believe in Jesus that are sharing their, their clone view of who he is and how he functions. Hear me say it again, brothers and sisters, I'm you. I ain't judging. I'm just saying, to quote my friend Chuck McCoskey with one of his famous quotes. You need to write a book of quotes, Chuck. I think it could sell. I really do. You know, Philip Yancey, who wrote What's So Amazing About Grace, and just he's just a tremendous author, I think. I just feel his heart when he writes. He wrote a book, it might have been What's So Amazing About Grace, where he interviewed a Hindu scholar. And the Hindu scholar says, we can duplicate any miracle in Christianity that you folks in Christianity can come up with except one. And Yancey said, the resurrection, right? He goes, no, we can do that. We raise people from the dead. And if you read the Vedic literatures, the Hindu literature, there are stories of resurrection. You and I might say they're mythology. They would say they're history. Like we say, our resurrection stories are history. He goes, no, that's not it. He goes, this is the one thing we can't do. He says, in Hinduism, this scholar said, we're divided into 5,000 different levels, strata. He says, the one thing we can't do is what Galatians 3 28, another of your New Testament texts say that you do, and that is, in Christ there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male or female, because everyone is one in Christ. This Hindu scholar said this. If we ever saw that kind of love, we would know as Hindus that the true God was in the house. Ironic. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in this text. I could go on, but we need to move forward. I think we're starting to get this. I think. Here's where I think we are really stumbling. We are trying to love like never before in American Christianity. Here's where I think we're stumbling. What we often still secretly struggle with is this phrase from Jesus' words, as I have loved you. Because my brothers and sisters, when we know the love of Christ deep in our spirits, I'm telling you, there's nothing we can do but love. There's nothing we can do but love when we know that we're loved. So let's pause for a moment this morning, and let me just ask you. I wish I could pause time and go around and ask each of you individually, saying, look, we're safe here. Just tell me your truth, man. I'll tell you mine. You tell me yours. If I said today, deep in your spirit, do you know that the God of the universe loves you like he really really loves you, what would you say? Now, my experience in asking that question, again, all over the country and all over the world, all kinds of different cultural settings, different kinds of human beings, many times people will say, well, the Bible says, for God so loved the world, or the Bible says God is love. Notice, I didn't ask you to quote me a Bible verse about love. I asked you, do you know that he loves you? And you might say, well, the Bible, I, you think I don't like the Bible? I spent my entire life studying this book. Five and a half years of Greek, two years of Hebrew, three years of Latin to try to get Bible inside me. And a little bit has gotten in there for sure. But I'm not sure a Bible, in fact, I'm very sure a Bible verse alone cannot convince your broken heart 
that God loves you. My daughter Andrea is going to be 35 this year. For parents out here who are around our age, isn't that like shocking when you look at your kids and you go, dang, man, when I was 35, I thought those people there were like old and now I is one of them. It's really, Taff, you got you got to put those thoughts aside. I can't live under that thing, you know, but I got a 35-year-old kid. It's my baby. She's 35. She's three and a half decades old. If I said to her today, and I've got three girls, and I love my girls. And I love my two sons-in-law. But if I asked Andrea today, do you know that your daddy loves you? And she said, well, Dad, I'm sure I do. And I said, well, can you just tell me how? And she said, well, one time when I was seven, you were on a ministry trip, of course, and you missed my birthday. But you did send me a card. And at the bottom of the card, it said, I love you, Daddy. And so I carry that card. I folded it up. I put it in my back pocket of my jeans or my purse or whatever, my wallet. And I carry it around with me. So if I ever doubt that you love me, I just take out the card and read the words. I think many times that's the way we treat the Scripture. If, if I knew that that's the only evidence, baby, you never felt that love in the way I embraced you. You never felt that tender kiss on your cheek at night. You never saw my tears for you as we talked about self-image and self-esteem when you were 13 and struggling. By the way, we should skip junior high. Skip it. It serves no purpose except to mess with our insides. Do you remember when I was there when you, when, when you were playing t-ball and when you were standing out in the outfield and um, while the, you know, the game's going on and you're picking flowers and throwing them up in the air and going like this. Do you remember me being there? Do you remember anything else where I communicated my love to you? No, Daddy, I just have, I just have the card. My brothers and sisters, every relationship that's important to you and me this morning, we expect to have an experience of love in that relationship. If you're married today and all you have is words, your, your marriage is in trouble. There's something intended about every relationship, including our relationship with God, that is supposed to impact deep places in our spirit so we can say on any given day, even if this has been the worst day, I know that my God loves A little of my story. I believed in Christ at the age of five. I was raised in a Christian home. My mom and dad are somewhere out here this morning. My, my parents who helped me find Christ. Became the youth group guy. You know, the, the guy in youth group. You know, whoever was going to be there, I was going to be there. I was... The guy that showed up at church. Went to a Christian university right west of here, east of here, Taylor University. Played football for four years. Kicked Anderson College's butt several times, I think, I remember. With a couple of guys here that used to play. We, we won't go there, but... Went out and shared Christ with teenagers because, you know, there was something of minor celebrity status if you played sports and shared Jesus. 
Went off to seminary again, studied all the languages and whatnot. Somewhere along the lines, my brothers and sisters, I missed the love of God for me. I knew about the love of God for you, but I didn't really know that he loved me. There were signs. There were signs. Um, Early on in my marriage, man, we, we were like the Barbie and Ken marriage that came out of Taylor University. And early on in my marriage, I some signs of some emptiness inside me, and I put my hands on my wife in an inappropriate way. Regret it to this day. Only touched her one time, but I'll never forget it. And she's forgiven me 40,000 times because I've apologized 40,000 times. But here's the point. I was so broken inside, so devoid of knowing the love of God for me personally. I didn't have much love to give, especially when conflict happened. And then a little ways down the road, we had children. And I would sit there um, on that big lazy boy, Chuck, that I was talking to you about. We eventually had to throw this lazy boy away, not because it wasn't still functional, but because of all the stuff my girls had stuffed down in that chair, old um, Fruit Loops, and you know what I'm talking about? That chair became so disgusting we had to throw it away. But that chair is the chair we used to sit in and watch Fred Rogers. So I'd be sitting there, you know, at whatever age I was, and I would hear Brother Fred. They're making a movie about his life, by the way. Tom Hanks is going to star as Mr. Rogers. And he would sing this song, some version of this song that I have this copy of, that he basically spoke, by the way, at his conclusion of a of a baccalaureate talk to Boston University. Fred Rogers was just Fred Rogers wherever he went. And he said to these these students and their parents, he said, it's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you I like. The way you are right now, the way deep down inside you, not the things that hide you, not your diplomas and your awards, They're just beside you. It's you I like. Every part of you. And I would sit there, and my girls were hanging all over me, and I would weep. And you know how it is, parents, when your children see you crying, and they don't see you cry that much, they they look up and they go, is that a tear? And then they're like all concerned, why are you crying, Daddy? And I honestly, I didn't know what to say. I know what to say today. Fred Rod- I wanted I wanted God to speak to me like Fred Rogers was speaking to me through that television set. But I didn't know that kind of love from him. And finally, it ended in, ni- er, in uh, 1990 at the age of 36. I was a successful pastor telling everyone else about the love of God. And one night, I was so devoid of that love. Uh, east, on the east side of Detroit, 94 and Allard. I almost drove my car into a cement embankment. If God, and I think it was God, wouldn't have flashed my three little girls and their faces in front of my face, I think I wouldn't be standing here talking to you today because I could not live with that emptiness any longer. Here's the point, my brothers and sisters. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 3.19 when he prays this amazing prayer for those folk and for us. He says, this is what I wish for you, that you might be rooted 
and grounded in the love of Christ. He didn't even say the Bible. He said in the love of Christ, which is deeper even than the text, so that you might know that love. Remember what he says? That is high and wide and deep and long. Because to know that love, don't miss this, is to be filled with all the fullness of God. The opposite of fullness is emptiness. To the extent this morning, my brothers and sisters, that you and I know the love of God, we're full, and we have something to give one another, let alone the world. But the extent that we don't experience that love, we're empty. And one way or another, whether in illegitimate ways, like in the neighborhood where I pastored for 16 years, we're talking crack, we're talking heroin, we're talking alcohol, we're talking excessive amounts of alcohol. I mean, to the point that people literally never, ever got sober. They just, their whole bodies were pickled with alcohol because of the emptiness. Illicit sexuality, or it could even be us trying to fill up the emptiness with our children. You've seen the dad or the mom at the Little League game, you know, when Junior strikes out, and they're like, rah, rah. I'm thinking, is that about your son? Ma'am, or is that about your your empty heart? We can even try to fill up the emptiness with addiction to church. One of my favorite authors, a Jesuit priest named Anthony DeMello says, your life does not begin when you think you start to love God. It begins when you start to know that he loves you. Now, to transition and to begin to take us home, I mean, Pastor Aaron said I had a couple hours. I don't know if that's your typical um, if that's your typical rhythm or not, but that's what he told me. That's what I heard. Um, some of you might be saying, dang, man, I think it's really good my friend's here. I hope they're hearing this. But sometimes we can be very resistant to this because it's going to take maybe a different pathway of doing Christianity. What if I gave you some signs of emptiness? Signs that did not come out of a book. Each of these signs came out of my life. When I first put together this list, I just thought of what I experienced as an educated four-year THM all the biblical languages, full-time, professional, Christian, pastor type. The emptiness I experienced. These were the symptoms that led me to almost take my own life. Because to not know the love of God is to begin to die right now. So try this one on for size. Either we don't know who we are or we secretly hate who we are. Identity problem. You know, you walk into a room. And you just find yourself, if you're honest, morphing into whoever the room is because you need to feel, you need to feel loved. So instead of just walking to the room and saying, this is who I am, and I, I really know that I'm loved as who I am, we tend to struggle with that identity piece. Or sometimes it even can morph into self-hatred. You say, how do you know about that? Because I used to hate myself. People loved me, but I hated me. That's kind of hard to admit, isn't it? Especially in a Christian context. Can you imagine coming in from the parking lot today and someone says to you, say, how you doing, man? You go, I'm good, I'm good. I hate myself, but otherwise I'm fine. I mean, who do you even tell that to? 
in the Christian context, but my brothers and sisters, I'm going to say, if, if today, look, I, if, if you're feeling that, please, no shame, I'm you. And I'm just saying, you don't have to live that way any longer. What about this symptom? We're tormented by voices from our childhood where we're supposed to get the love of God. It's supposed to be like this, just this copper channel Love from the father through the parents to the children. But which of us as parents today would say we've done a perfect job of that? We can only give away, correct, what we've received. So what if mom and dad only get it like 30% that we give 30% of that love and 70% of whatever else we have to offer? It's tough to get in touch with this, some of these wounds, because... We often feel very defensive for our parents. I've told my three girls, whatever you need to do to recover from any way that I wounded you in your childhood, you make sure you do it. And if you need something from me, an apology, an amends, you need me to fly out to where you are to go to a therapist so that we can do the healing work. I'm your dad. You don't have to take care of me. Even at this time in our lives, I'm here to be there for you. So a couple years ago, I got in touch with this group of Christian social workers who were being present to children whose parents were just so jacked up, they didn't have any love to give. And so they gave, they would host these conferences, and then they would tell these children, you can write us, and we'll write back. So just, just stay present just for a moment. Listen to a couple of these. The group was called Heart to Heart. Dear Heart to Heart, I'm so, so sad. My dad is an alcoholic, and I love him so much. I get mad when he breaks promises, and maybe if I would be really good, he would stop drinking. Please help me. Dear heart to heart, my name is Darren. I'm in middle school. This is the worst year of my life. I hate school, and my parents think I don't try, but I do. I started drinking. It's the only time I feel okay. Dear heart to heart, why did God make a dumb person? P.S. I am the dumb person. Don't you want to just grab that little kid and pull him close to your heart? And just begin to show them, not just tell them how loved they are. Dear heart to heart, things are going awful. I have to go to the therapist, but it never helps me. I would just like to have one friend of my own. My parents like my sister best. Dear heart to heart, my dad calls me stupid Sam. He even says it in front of my friends and then he laughs. I told him it wasn't even funny, but he still does it. Please help me. Dear heart to heart, why did God make me like this? I think you get the point. And I I simply want to say today, my brothers and sisters, if you have wounds like that, we have a Jesus who said, I'm not just your Savior, I'm your healer. And he wants to heal those wounds so that you don't have to walk through life just hearing those shaming voices from your childhood wounds. But you can hear his voice calling you beloved son and beloved daughter of mine. What about this one? Constantly looking for approval. I'm not talking about needing Occasional encouragement. Does anybody here need occasional appropriate encouragement? Of course we do. I'm talking about rolling up your sleeves saying, 
tell me some more good things about myself because I don't know how to access anything from in here that comes from my God about who I am. So I need you to tell me who I am. That's called an addiction. And it will keep you from ever living into your true purpose. I'm here to say today, that was me. Man, I'd come down after preaching a sermon, and obviously I wouldn't roll up my sleeve. But when I was going into conversations, I was like, whatever else you're going to tell me. I mean, you could be telling me that you're near death, but just tell me I preached a good sermon, please. I'm so embarrassed to tell you that, but that was the reality. With all of my gifting, with all of my background, so empty inside, I just had this constant addiction to approval that kept me, well, eventually it led to my near-death experience. How about this one? We find ourselves being critical of others. Some of you are saying, well, I've got Bible verses to back up my criticism, so maybe some people need to be criticized around this place. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about constructive criticism that comes from a heart of love. I'm talking about the kind of criticism that comes out of a spirit that's critical inside our own heads first. When we're living with lies from our enemy, who, by the way, Jesus calls the father of lies. When we're living with lies like this, I am stupid. I am ugly. Others are more important than I am. I can't make decisions on my own. I will never amount to anything. I can't do anything right. If people knew the real me, they would reject me. So I have to stay hidden. So they won't. I'm permanently defective. I'm damaged goods. God is angry at me. I'm fundamentally unlovable. I will always be afraid. The things that I have done can never be forgiven. No one will love me if I don't achieve something. I'm on the outside looking in. I don't really fit with anyone anywhere. And, of course, the big lie is I'm not loved. With those voices in our heads, my brothers and sisters, we will find ourselves being consistently critical of others in every sphere of life. With my dear best friend wife today, meet her at the book table today. I hope you get to meet her. She's an amazing human being. She is my soulmate, my best friend. The single most important reason why I believe there's a personal God, because no one could have lived with me like she has and loved me well. And some of you husbands out there know exactly what I'm talking about. But I will tell you, when I am critical of her today after 40 years, 99.9% of the time, it's not about anything that she has done. It's about my own critical voice inside me that's working its way out into the outside world. What if we began to hear the voice of the Father calling us beloved sons and beloved daughters so that we could speak that healing truth to a broken world that is full of that criticism inside their heads. One of the reasons they're acting out is not because they're different from us, more evil than us. You know, they have like an evil gene. It's because of all the pain inside that's looking to be healed. How can we bring healing unless we know that healing ourselves? How about this one? We find ourselves having difficulty in relationships, meaning, why can't I maintain a friendship? Why do my friendships keep failing? Could it be that we're trying to get that other human being to fill up a space inside here that only the love of Christ, Paul says, can fill up? 
I spent 10 years of my marriage trying to get Carla to finally to fill this up inside. Finally, she said, what do you want from me? And honestly, my brothers and sisters, I didn't know. Now I know. I wanted her to be the love of Christ. I know since that any relationship can only be the icing. It can never be the cake. The cake is only the love of Christ that Paul says will fill us up with all the fullness of God. What about this one? Never at peace, constantly driven. And sometimes we say, you know, I'm just like that. I'm one of those busy people. Okay, maybe. Or, you know, the man, man, the man makes me work 75 hours a week. Maybe. But could it be that we intuit that we have this emptiness and this pain inside our spirits? That we know the minute we slow down that pain and those voices start to rise to the surface. And so to keep the pain at bay, we have to stay consistently active. Even if it's stuff that we'll look back on our life and say, why did I spend so much of my time doing that? What if you began to believe today you don't have to be afraid to slow down, let the voices surface, and your healer, Jesus, who loves you with all of his heart, will be there to begin to heal that wound so you can find out what you're really supposed to be doing in your life. And, of course, the last one, addictive tendencies of all kinds. Anytime we think there's a thing or an individual we have to have, we have to do, we've got to do it, and it begins to disrupt the rest of our life, my brothers and sisters, it's because of an emptiness inside that we're trying to get that addictive whatever to fill up, and it never can. Only the love of Christ can do that. Okay, see you next week. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that to you. Sometimes I like to do some of this teaching at a retreat setting. I've been with Taff at one of those retreats where we teach this, and then we send people off to do some work on really what's going on inside. And then we come back the next day and begin to unpack it. But um, I'm just going to share a couple of thoughts before we wind this down and, and complete this this morning about maybe I would call it a healing path. I don't like to say healing steps. I don't know about you, but when I go to a, a Christian bookstore and there's a book that says, here are the five steps to nirvana. Here are the six ways. If you just list, look at my list, I don't buy those books because I, I don't think relational intimacy can be had by steps. So I'd like to give you three non-step steps this morning. And they're basically just pieces of relationship. The first non-step step is going to be about our relationship with us, ourselves. The second one will be about, briefly, relationship with God. And the third one will be about relational healing with others. So here's the first one. You'll see it on the screen. What if the first healing non-step step was just get honest? Jesus said the truth will set you free. And in that context, it probably means something else, but I think it's still a true-ism. We've got to start by being honest. I mean, Paul says in Ephesians 4, stop lying. 
what if he implied, first, stop lying to yourself? You know, you know, we, we do the church thing. We come to church. We lift our hands. We work in a Sunday school. We get into the community. We do this, we do that, we do this, we do that. And inside, we're dying. Or our Christian life has become a series of lists. Or wonderful spiritual disciplines. I'm not against the spiritual disciplines, but it's like the Christian life is about, I gotta be disciplined. I mean, between me and my wife, are you kidding me? If I said, baby, I've been reading this book about the spiritual disciplines of marriage, and I'm just telling you, no matter what I feel toward you, I'm gonna be about the spiritual disciplines of marriage. Is that really you think what God wants? What if we just got honest and said, I am longing. I, I'm longing. I sing the songs and I think everybody else seems to get it. Why don't I get it? Maybe they're not getting it either. Just look at you. What if you just got honest today, my brothers and sisters, and said, I, I need to know. I need to experience more of the love of Christ. I'm ready to begin a journey toward home. The second non-step step has to do with our relationship with God. What if, if you have courage, or if you're not ready, wait, but at some point you'll take your honesty and you're going to turn toward God. And I'm going to encourage you to turn toward him as your Abba Father. This is what Paul says. You did not receive, and the you there is us. You didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. When you look at God, it's not about being in chains to some list of rules, and it's not about being petrified. You received the Holy Spirit of adoption. He picked you out of an orphanage, man. He said amongst, he said, I want you. Yeah, but Kevin's all jacked up. Uh, sir, I know more about Kevin than you do. I want him to be my son. So that now, Paul says, you and I, as adopted sons and daughters, have the privilege of crying out every moment of every day, Abba, which, as you know, is the Aramaic word that a little child might use when he first recognizes or she first recognizes her daddy. That little baby wouldn't say, Father, it's good to see you this morning. That little baby wouldn't even say, Dad. That little baby would say something like, Dada. Now, Paul's not saying that God isn't other things to us. He's our creator. He's our king. He's, he's our Lord. He's saying God invites us to relate to him most prominently as Abba. Just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Father, I wish this cup would pass, but nevertheless, Abba, not my will, but yours be done. What if we began to see God as our Abba? Now, I'm not saying that none of us here this morning see him that way. I know that I didn't. I think I had a combination of I think sometimes I saw him as my coach because I played sports. So it's like God, he's a benevolent coach. You know, if you, if you played athletics, I mean, you know, there's some bad coaches and some good coaches, some real mean coaches and some really nice coaches. He's a good coach. He's a nice coach. But he's, when you look at him, he's always going, can you just cut one more tenth off your spiritual 40 time? 
I mean, I know you need to be loved, but, 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 but get back out there and train, please. How ex- who wants to have a quiet time with a God who constantly is saying, would you get stronger? Would you get better, please? Hey, with a smile. Sometimes I used to think he was like my instructor, my, my professor, Professor God. So that every time I looked at him, he'd be going, so what are you reading lately in my word? You are reading my words, aren't you? Regularly, every day, I hope. I'd say, Lord, I, I just finished Romans. Well, fine. Next, it's the prophet Amos. You need to get there quickly. But, Lord, I'm just still trying to... Ne- We've got more material to cover than you have lifetime. Who wants to connect with a God who every time we look at him, he's just saying there's more for you to learn and know. Sometimes I saw him as my cop, my, my cop in the sky, a good cop. In fact, by the way, this is for another talk, but sometimes I think I miss my calling. To show you what I think about policemen, I think I should have been a cop some some days. Chicago PD, maybe my favorite show. Any others? Chicago PD? Don't be ashamed. Yikes. Okay, soul sister. Nobody else raised their hand, just me and you. Hank Boyd's a tough, yeah, he's got some issues, i got to say. But somebody's got to keep us in line, right? Somebody's got to keep us walking the straight and narrow. Might as well be God. He's at least benevolent. And if we need to be put in time out, he'll do it. Brothers and sisters, those are all lies. And by the way, if that's how we relate to God, how do you think the non-believing world sees our God? But what if today we began to say, Father... Maybe you really are, first and foremost, my Abba, Father. I want to take a risk and start pouring out what I'm getting honest about to you. Like my daughter Leanne, who's a therapist today, who used to be petrified of ants. I mean, she'd see an ant. And I mean, it was, I used to, we used to think something was wrong. But we know now that those were just the early signs of her sensitivity that was going to make her a great therapist. But she would be so afraid of ants, she would run to me and throw herself up into my arms and just wail. And then she'd get done and she'd go off and play. Where did she leave her tears? Where did she leave her pain? Where did she leave her longing? On her Abba's chest. What if that began, my brothers and sisters, my dearly beloved brothers and sisters, what if that began to shape the way you view your God? Finally, lastly, what if, this is about relationship with each other, what if we began to believe that the healing that our Abba wants to give us partly comes through Him and our walk with Him, our connection with Him, not doing our duty, but connecting with him as our Abba. But what if much of the rest of the healing is right here in the body of Christ? What if I said to you that according to the apostles, the main reason we get together, it's partly to hear a teaching. It's partly to worship, Colossians 3. But in major ways, it's here so we can turn toward one another and heal one another. 
in the name of Christ. You say, where did you get that nonsense, man? Right there, look, 1 Peter 4, 8. And by the way, Peter, where was Peter on the night that Jesus said, love one another and the world will know? He was right there at Jesus' feet. He says, above all things. He says it to the Asia Minor Church. He's also saying it to us today. And by the way, you know what in Greek, above all things means? Above all things. Very, very sophisticated. Very few people can study the Bible like that. Above all things, nothing else more important. Nothing, nothing, nothing more important. Have fervent love for one another. Because that love will heal a multitude of sins. Translate anything that the enemy has perpetrated upon you to shut you down as sons and daughters of God can be healed in the body of Christ by us simply being present to one another. You say, well, how does that work, man? Is there some kind of a, like Star Wars kind of a, you know, thing? Remember when Jesus said, Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, where did he say he would be? Right there in the midst. Doing what? Doing the healing work that he came to do. So when I'm sitting here next to my young brother with my hand on his shoulder and we're just sharing our lives, Jesus is sitting not out on Mars somewhere and wherever we think heaven is, he's sitting Right here, the resurrected Son of God is right here doing a healing work. We don't come to just sit and look at the back of someone's head and people up front. We come to be the healing body of Christ to one another. One last thing. Do you know that this is not only biblical truth, but it's neurobiological reality? The neurobiologists tell us that our limbic brain, our right brain, gets hurt, literally damaged. They can hook up electrodes and see the damage to the tissue by being not loved. Because the limbic brain is where we do relationship. It's where we either know we're loved or we're not loved. And you know what those same neurobiologists say about that damage that occurs to our right brain that can happen as early as the third trimester in the womb? The way we heal the brain from the damage of unlove is by being loved. What do you know? I don't even think Peter knew the word neurobiology, but he said the same thing 2,000 years ago. So if I could this morning, what I would do right now, I would just, again, pause time, and I would ask for the privilege and the honor of sitting with each of you one-on-one and just saying, could you tell me your story? so that we could just be brother and sister in Christ, or brother and brother in Christ, knowing that the living Christ is here. And we would try to get honest with God, try to find our way to Him as Abba, and just see what He would do about our wounded journey to begin to heal us and set us free. But, of course, that would take a bit of time. So what I'd like to close with is I'd like to close with something that I've done many, many, many times. Some of you have seen me do this before. But I want to do it again in your midst. I want to, I want to close with a blessing prayer over someone. And I'm, I'm hoping, James, you'll let me 
you will be my son this morning. Would you do that for me? Would you please? James and I have got to know each other in the last month and we're coming close very, very quickly. And I just as I was sitting here this morning, I said, Lord, who? And I'm not saying I heard a voice, but my gut would not let me come off of you, my dear brother. So in the Jewish community on Friday night at the beginning of Sabbath, the Jewish father will call to this day, to this day, he'll call his sons and daughters to him and give them a blessing, a personal blessing. Sometimes it'll be the number six blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Sometimes it will be he'll go off script because he's a dad and loves his kids in very personal ways. Here's what I'd like you to begin to think about this morning as I bless my son, James. How old are you, James? I'm 64. It means I would have been nine. Um, so we're going to have to do a little, little play acting here, all right? I want you to think about this. As you watch me bless, this was supposed to be a sign in the Jewish community of the love of a, of a loving father to the people embedded in the family system for all time and eternity. So I want you to think about this today. What if you ever in your entire life ever received a blessing like this one time? How would it have changed your capacity to experience the love of the Father today in your walk with God? And secondly, I want you to contemplate this. Because maybe you never have had that blessing and maybe your parents are gone. Maybe you'll never get this from your mom or dad. Maybe contemplate what would it be like if you began to believe that this kind of blessing that I'm giving James is exactly what your Abba is giving you, son, is giving you, daughter, every moment of every day of your life. bless you, son. I want to tell you that I have this vivid memory of the day you were born. It was the most amazing thing. I had three daughters. I was fully ready to have another daughter. Been totally cool. Love my girls. Sons and daughters are equal in the father's sight. But I got to say, since men and women are equal but different, and I hadn't had a son, when the doctor said, you've got a son, I can't tell you how overjoyed I was to see you. And it was at that moment when my first name, my family name, James, I gave that name to you, James. My son, James. I want you to know, son, I've never loved you more or less than I loved you at that moment. And this is what I hope you can hear from me on this Sabbath evening, James. Is that at that point when I blessed you, you hadn't done one thing. You had no merit badges. You hadn't hit any home runs. You hadn't brought home any A's on your report card. You just were. I admit you made made an arduous trip down the birth canal. I admit that. But... uh, I don't think you have much choice, brother. I think that's the way God designed it. You had done a thing, and I just loved you. And that's the way I've felt about you since that day. Whether you scored the winning touchdown or whether you fumbled the ball on the goal line, 
no matter what you did, son, look me in the eye. I just loved you. You might have thought, does dad love me now? I've always loved you. And whether something happens, you get broken and you go to prison, or whether you become the next president of the United States, I'm here to tell you today, son, I will always love you. I will always love you like I loved you then. And as you go out into life and there's all kinds of I'll love you, but then they don't love you. You need to know that whenever you need me, you just look over your shoulder and your father will be there because you're my son. You're my boy. And I just love you. May the Lord bless you, James. And may the Lord keep you. And may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And may the Lord be gracious unto you. And may the Lord give you of his sweet and his deep and his everlasting peace. Amen. Friends, it has been so good to be with you. Thank you so much, Kevin, for being here. Kevin, I'm going to let Kevin go ahead and... Um, I'm going to let him go ahead and get to the table um, to be there. Uh, if you want to meet Kevin, if you want to buy a book, uh, he's going to be out there. And uh, I'm going to pray a prayer blessing over us as we leave this place. Um, but if, if God's still working on you with something, um, feel free to stay in here. Um, I may even ask a few people who I know. Uh, Chuck, I think you probably would stay in here. If, if people want prayer come up somewhere here and I promise you someone's going to find a place to have prayer with you guys. But let me pray a prayer blessing as we leave this place. God, I just, I thank you for God, just the truth that, that Kevin spoke, God, so beautifully that God, we are just deeply loved, not because of the things that we've done, not the things that we could earn, but God, sheerly because you chose us, you wanted us, God, just as we are. God, you desire to bring us in closer. God, that prayer blessing was beautiful. And I pray that those words, God, would just be imprinted on our hearts. God, would you fill us up with your Holy Spirit in a way, God, that we are just overflowing with it. And God, would you point our heart and our feet in the direction that you'd have us leave this place as sons and daughters of the King. And that, God, we would go out in this world to advance your kingdom with so much love that the world will not know what is hidden. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.